Have you ever, I know you have because we all have, ever been really, really tired? Had a really long day and been really, really, really tired. So that all you could think about was falling asleep. We just couldn't wait to hit that pillow and just go to sleep. You ever been there? We've all been there, right? Pastor Mark was there a couple times this past week, actually. Anyway, do you remember how wonderful it felt on that occasion when you were so, so tired? How wonderful it felt when you finally crawled under the covers of your bed and put your head down on that soft pillow of yours and closed your eyes? felt wonderful, didn't it? To get finally be getting the rest that you were so longing for. It's a wonderful thing to get rest that we need. Well, children, we're going to talk this morning, I'm going to be preaching this morning about a kind of rest that's way more wonderful than the kind of rest that you enjoy when you hit the pillow at the end of a long, tiring day. We're going to be talking today about spiritual rest um, that's way more wonderful, indeed indescribably more wonderful than that comfortable and wonderful feeling that you have when you are finally able to go to sleep at the end of a long, tiring day. It's, it's a rest, this spiritual rest, is a rest that is promised to us by God in this passage. So listen carefully, okay? As uh, we unpack this, I'll try to make this understandable to you uh, as we go through uh, this complex passage. It's quite complex, actually. You probably figured that out as I was reading it to you. But it's extremely uh, pregnant with meaning, and like I say, I'm going to cover um, the uh, most salient points in it while not getting into every last nook and cranny of it uh, today, because that would just be too much. Uh, so... Um, back in chapter 3, verse 7, as I indicated a few moments ago, the writer of Hebrews began an exposition of Psalm 95, verses, actually it's verse 7, not 8, verses 7 through 11 of Psalm 95, written by David, okay, about a thousand years before the writer of the Hebrews is writing here, a little over a thousand years, when David was writing Psalm 95. Psalm 95, in that psalm, David is reflecting on and drawing lessons from the great sin that the Israelites who preceded him had committed back in the wilderness some 400 years prior to David's day. So, uh, the writer of the Hebrews is reflecting on David's writing um, of psalm, what he says in Psalm 95, well, David in Psalm 95 is reflecting on something that happened 400 years or so prior to his day, which is recorded for us back in Numbers chapter 14. So you got to keep that in mind, okay, as we uh, look at uh, Psalm 95 and as we look at Hebrews 4 and so on. Um, but David, when he was writing his psalm and the Holy Spirit through him, who was speaking through David, intended for Psalm 95, back when it was written, to serve as a warning to uh, the people, the, the covenant people of his day, of David's day, not to fall into the same willful unbelief, the sin of willful, willful unbelief that the wilderness generation some 400 years earlier fell into. 
That was David when he was writing Psalm 95. Well, the writer of the Hebrews takes what David wrote back in Psalm 95 to the people in his day. The writer of the Hebrews takes that psalm um, uh, that was written about Israel's rebellion against God in the wilderness, and he, in the New Testament, applies that material to the New Testament church, which is us, by the way. He's applying it to the church of his day, warning them not to fall into the same sin of unbelief themselves. And of course, the Lord put Hebrews in our Bible, made sure it got in here, so that it would continue speaking down through the New Testament age to us. Warning the church of our day, the church of our day, not to fall into the same sin. This means that you and I, as New Testament saints, in the same um, covenant administration that the writer of the Hebrews is in, the new covenant administration of the one covenant of grace, you and I are in the same spiritual situation that the Christians in the writer of the Hebrews day were in, which was the same situation that the uh, uh, believing Jews in David's day to whom David was writing, we're in, and are in the same situation that the people uh, of Moses' day in the wilderness were in as well. We are all in the same spiritual situation when it comes to this issue. Now, when it comes to sacrifices and things like that, it's it's way different in the New Testament age. But when it comes to this issue that, that the writer of the Hebrews is addressing and David was addressing, it's the same. The implication of this fact is that you and I, uh, today, in the church of today, need to be exceptionally careful ourselves not to imitate the wilderness generation's stubborn refusal to believe and act upon God's word. That's what, what it was. Stubborn, deliberate, willful refusal to believe and act on God's word. We need to be careful of that ourselves because if we are not careful... To avoid that kind of behavior, we will fail to enter the rest that the writer of the Hebrews is talking about here, that David was also talking about in his psalm. We will fail to enter that rest. Just as previous generations of churchgoers, I'll put it that way, have. But what, just exactly, what is this rest? Which to which the writer of the Hebrews is referring here in Hebrews 4, and that David was referring to when he spoke of my rest in Psalm 95. What is the nature of this rest? Well, that's the rest of the sermon. Um, Let me just say this. I am indebted significantly to Richard Gaffin's uh, very... I would call it masterful analysis of this passage. I don't always agree with Richard Gaffin uh, on everything, but I certainly agree with him on this uh, his exegesis of this passage. It's very been, been very helpful, and I'm going to quote him uh, probably three different times during the course of this uh, uh, sermon because, uh, like I say, he uh, really helped me with this passage a lot. So, three things regarding this rest. First of all, the rest to which the writer refers in Hebrews 3 and 4, remember 3, 7 through 4, 13 or 14, the rest to which the writer refers in Hebrews 3 and 4 
is identified with God's rest at creation. Secondly, the rest to which the writer refers in Hebrews 3 and 4 is entirely future. I'll explain that. And then thirdly, the rest to which the writer refers in Hebrews 3 and 4 is to be anticipated by you and me by our ongoing keeping of the Sabbath day. So, those are the three points that make up the rest of our sermon, the rest of the sermon. First, we're going to look at the rest to which the writer refers in Hebrews 3 and 4 is identified with God's rest at creation. This is evident in several places, but particularly in uh, verse 4 of Hebrews 4, where he says, For he, God, has thus said somewhere concerning the seventh day, quote, And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. That is a quote from Genesis uh, chapter 2, verse 2, I believe it is. So, let me, let me back up here. So, he's continuing his, he started back in chapter 3, verse 7. He's continuing his exposition of, uh, an unpacking of Psalm 95 here. Um, and, but what's new in chapter 4 of Hebrews is the enrichment of his interpretation of Psalm 95. He does enrich the meaning, or the he pulls out the meaning that David probably didn't see, but by the grace of the Holy Spirit's work in his life, the writer of the Hebrews did see the meaning of something that a couple things that David said in Psalm ninety-five, um, and that he enriches the. Uh, let me read my notes here. What's new is the enrichment of his interpretation of Psalm 95 by his use of, there it is, by his use of Genesis 2-2. So, and that's what I just quoted for you in verse 4. It's Genesis 2-2. And so he, he puts together Psalm 95 and Genesis 2-2 and, and, and mixes them up, if we can put it that way. Um, blends them together and says they're referring to the same thing. Okay? Well, um, and what he's, what he's doing by enriching, by adding Genesis 2-2 is he is clarifying, the writer is, the nature of this rest that the Israelites in the wilderness were excluded from. The vast majority of them were excluded from this rest that David spoke of and that God spoke of in Genesis 2-2. They were kept out of it. They did not partake of it. The wilderness generation that died in the wilderness, to recall with the exception of Joshua and Caleb, who were allowed to enter into the land. The divine rest which David speaks of in Psalm 95, and which God, through the writer of the Hebrews, uh, urges the readers of his day and those of our day to enter into that rest, is none other than the rest that God himself entered into on the last day of the creation week. It's that rest. The rest for which you are to strive if you are a professing Christian and which you will certainly enter if you are truly a Christian is the same rest the triune God himself partakes of. It's his rest. That's why he calls it my rest in David, through David. 
Now I confess that it is this is such a mind-boggling concept, participation in God's rest that he entered into uh, on the seventh day of creation week after he'd finished his work of creating. Uh, this is such a mind-boggling concept that I'm not quite sure what to do with it other than to state the kind of obvious. And that is, it's got to be an out-of-this-world blessing to participate in the God's own rest. Something that you and I should be highly motivated to strive for, to strive to enter, and to look forward to. The rest of heaven. God's rest. That he enjoys in his triune um, personhood. In addition to seeing a reference to God's rest in Genesis 2-2, the writer of Hebrews also sees, and this is important, he sees an implied implied command in Genesis 2-2 to all of mankind. What's that implied command? That implied command is to enter and share in God's rest. You are to do this. You are to enter into the rest that God himself enjoys. You are to be purposeful about entering that rest. And he says that to all humanity before the fall, by the way. <coughs> Excuse me. I should turn that off. Okay, so... And, let me, and verse 6, by the way, makes this point. Since therefore... This implied command uh, to enter into God's rest. Since, therefore, it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly, the Israelites of old, who formerly had good news preached to them, failed to enter because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain day today, saying through David, after so long a time, just as has been said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts which is another way of saying, do not harden your hearts, enter God's rest that he has, is offering to you. Which, by the way, is a place of rest, represented as a place of rest, which is an interesting uh, uh, nuance to that uh, concept. The first so, so let me say this. He is making an argument here in verses 6 and 7 that I just read you. He's making an argument. And there are two premises in verse 6, and the conclusion is in verse 7. So let me read it again. Since, therefore, it remains for some to enter it. So he's saying that's the first thing. It remains for some people to enter this rest. He's talking there about believers in this world. Since, therefore, it remains for some to enter his rest... And secondly, the second premise is, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience. So that's the second premise. Two premises. And then the conclusion is, then he says, essentially, don't you harden your heart and fail to enter. In verse 7. So the first premise in verse 6, it remains for some to enter God's rest. That premise would have no validity if there wasn't an implied requirement to enter. You see what I'm saying? If he says that 
since there remains for some to enter it, there is built into that statement as an implied command, oh, by the way, you need to enter it, right? So that's my point. Um, there is an implied command there uh, to enter into this creation rest that is God's. Okay, that's the first point. So the rest to which the writer of the Hebrews is uh, writer of Hebrews refers in chapters three and four of this chapter is identified with God's rest at creation that we are to enter. Secondly, in this passage, we see that the rest to which the writer refers in Hebrews three and four is entirely future. This is the rest to which he refers here in this section, three seven through. 4.14. Just here. This is entirely future. You might go, what are you talking about? Well, I'm going to tell you. So, there are many uh, well-intentioned and, and godly uh, theologians who disagree with the point I'm making here that the rest to which the writer of the Hebrews uh, is referring in this section is an, is, is an entirely future phenomenon. This is where Gaffin was so helpful for me. Um, but but there are people who disagree with him. There's a there's a theologian who uh, was a professor of New Testament uh, theology at the University of Gloucestershire. There I got it in Britain, named A. T. Lincoln that uh, uh, Gaffin interacted with when he wrote this uh, piece some 30 years ago or so. Um, anyway, Lincoln uh, and others argue that the writer of the Hebrews here is referring not only to the heavenly rest that awaits the believer in the next life, which is future, they will say, well, yes, there's a future component to it. Lincoln says this and others. But they also would say, but also, in this section, the writer of the Hebrews is also referring to a rest that the believer is already enjoying and experiencing presently in this present life. Lincoln and others like him make that And they defend their view by pointing out that one of the principal themes in the book of Hebrews is the Christians, the believers, present present participation in and enjoyment of heavenly realities and blessings. This is called realized eschatology. And it is indeed one of the principal themes of the book of Hebrews, is realized eschatology. You are already a citizen of heaven. Well, he says that, Paul says that, but, but that still applies. It's, you're already participating in heavenly realities, even though you're here in this world. And that's true. And by the way, that is a major theme in the book of Hebrews. But just because this is one of the principal themes in the book, as a whole, doesn't mean every section of the book is promoting this idea of realized eschatology. You're already presently participating in and experiencing the benefits of uh, uh, of uh, the eschaton, the the uh, heaven, in fact. It is quite clear, I would say it's crystal clear, actually, from a careful consideration of the writer's argument in this section, beginning in chapter 3, verse 7, ending in uh, 4.13, I said 14, 4.13, it is quite clear from carefully under, uh, examining this um, 
that the writer in this section is not speaking of present enjoyment of heavenly realities. Even though he is in other sections of the book, he's not doing that here. Elsewhere, and again, in the rest of the New Testament, present spiritual rest that we presently enjoy as believers in our union with Christ is in view in numerous places in the New Testament, but not here in this section. I'm going to prove that to you here in the next few moments, I hope. That that is the case, that the rest spoken of in this section is entirely future in the writer's mind, and therefore in the Holy Spirit's, um, is the fundamental assumption in his argument here, the writer's argument in this section. It's the fundamental assumption that what he's speaking of regarding the believer's situation is entirely future for the believer, whatever whether he lives in the first century or the 21st century. Gaffin, again, in his discussion of this passage, which is marvelous. I, if you all want to read it, you're welcome. It's quite theological, and but you're welcome to read it. I've got a copy, and I can give it to you. But Gaffin um, uh, says this. Let me find my quote. Here we go. Now, again, try to follow this. Um, and I'm sorry if it's a little bit complicated, but hopefully... Uh, You'll follow the, the reasoning here. Here's what Gaffin says in his book, A Sabbath Rest. That's a book he, or the uh, article he wrote for the Westminster Theological Journal years ago. Quote, It is essential to grasp, then, that the entire passage, and he's referring to this passage here, 3, 7 through 4, 13, this entire passage rests on an assumption which is never spelled out, and that is that Israel in the wilderness, and believers under the new covenant are in analogous situations, meaning similar situations. He goes on, he says, Christians receive the same promise of rest. And he quotes, I'm going to give you references here, 3.11.4.1. They are exposed to similar trials and the same danger of unbelief and apostasy, 3.12.3.19.4.6. They are exhorted to the same perseverance in faith, Christians are, 3.8.3.14.4.1.4.11. In the New Testament, as well as Old Testament times, God's people are pilgrims and travelers, Gaffin says. Now, as then, they are people on the way, meaning on the way to the rest, to heaven. In this section, that's the... He goes on, believers have already experienced divine deliverance from the power of sin pictured by the exodus from bondage in Egypt. They've already experienced that. But they have not yet attained to that experience of salvation which is unthreatened and unchallenged represented by the rest and peace of Canaan of old. Passed through the judgment waters of the Red Sea, into wilderness, but haven't crossed the uh, Jordan into the promised land yet. We are in the wilderness, you see. That's the point of this of the writer here in this section as he's unpacking uh, uh, Psalm 95. The New Testament church is a wilderness community. 
says Gaffin. It is a company of aliens and strangers on earth, 11.13. Without at all suggesting that the church is a congregation of wilderness... Without at all suggesting that the wilderness... Without at all suggesting that the church as a congregation of wilderness aliens is the basic theme of Hebrews, that notion is certainly central and all controlling in this passage, says Gaffin. I think he's absolutely right. Okay. So in his exposition, writer of Hebrews' exposition of Psalm 95, 7 and following, Two expressions in the psalm are picked up by the writer of Hebrews and become the focus of his comments in Hebrews chapter 4. Namely, what are those two expressions? The word, today, and the phrase, my rest. The writer of Hebrews focuses on those two things. The time references of these two expressions, today and my rest, is not only not identical, the time reference is not, not only not identical in the writer, writer's mind, it doesn't overlap at all. So whenever it's today, it's not my rest. Whenever it's, not my, whenever, it's, whenever it's my rest, it's not today. Got that? That's the writer of the Hebrews operating assumption here as he's unpacking Psalm 95 and these two particular phrases from it. Today is equal to the readers, whoever the reader is, be it the first century reader or the 21st century reader, today is the reader's present situation. We are all in today. And the writer of the Hebrews' understanding of today. Of course, today, like I said, represents our present situation because we belong to the same age that the first century uh, uh, readers of this book, uh, or this sermon, rather, were reading. We, too, are in that same situation. That's today. My rest, the phrase my rest, is equivalent to the Christian reader's future situation that he hasn't arrived at or she hasn't arrived at yet. Again, Gaffin. Today is plainly applied to the present situation of the believer of, of the readers. It refers to the time, any time, in which quote-unquote, good news, the word of hearing, these are just phrases he pulls out of uh, Hebrews 4, any time in which good news, the word of hearing, is being proclaimed, in which, quote, the promise of entering his rest remains, for one. It is the time of summons to faith and obedience, when correlatively unbelief and apostasy are present and very real threats. 3.12, 3.13, 3.15, 4, 6, and 7. It is the time, consequently, in which final judgment and the consummation associated with it are still future. 9, 28, 12, 25, and following. In short, says Gaffin, today is the time of wilderness sojourn. When God's people walk by faith and not by sight quoting from Paul there in 2 Corinthians 5. My rest, on the other hand, one other, and this is the last quote from Gaffin, so uh, hang, hang with me. The la- uh, uh, Gaffin says this about my rest. My rest, 
as rest stands in pointed contrast to the believer's present circumstances. It is the antithesis of exposure to hardship and temptations, which is the present situation. He says, my rest is the antithesis of that, of exposure to hardship and temptations, to the toil which the present involves. Believers are presently at work, 6.10.10.24 of Hebrews, they are not at rest, as it's defined in this section of Hebrews. They are not at rest, but are strenuously seeking that rest, 4.11. My rest, in distinction, is the particular focus of faith and hope. It is a matter of promise, my rest is. It stands before the church as Canaan before Israel in the desert. They hadn't arrived yet, but uh, they were headed in that direction as the land about to be inherited, 114. Accordingly, my rest has an, an unmistakably local character. It is a place of rest, as opposed to a state of resting. Repeatedly, it is what believers enter into, 4.1 and 4.11. It appears to be identical to the heavenly homeland, mentioned in 11.16, the lasting city to come, mentioned in 13.14. It is correlate, it is correlate, I want to say, I think he means correlative, it is correlative with salvation, 1.14.9.28, and the eternal inheritance, 9.15, as still future. Throughout the passage, it is on, my rest is on the horizon. It refers to what is still future as long as it is called today, 13, uh, 3.13. This exclusively future understanding of my rest is not merely based on explicit, explicit statements of the writer, but flows out of the basic thrust of his argument, controlled by the notion of the church as wilderness community, not in the promised land. So, this is a very complex passage, thus all the theological jargon you're getting from me, but this is important to grasp because it, it, uh, it confirms um, some things here that uh, we Presbyterians believe that most of the evangelical church does not believe. Just as the earthly Canaan and the rest that it offered lay in the future from the standpoint of the Israelites in the wilderness, so the heavenly Canaan and the rest that it offers lies, lays in our future as well. In light of that fact, that the rest to which the writer is writing in 3, 7 through 4, 13, in light of the fact that that rest that he's speaking of is entirely future, the weekly Sabbath continues in force under the New Covenant. As Gaffin points out, to deny that this is the case, that the weekly Sabbath continues in force, to deny that this is the case is to suppose that, for the writer of Hebrews, the weekly sign of Sabbath observance has ceased, even though the reality to which it points is still future. It's out there, but if it's no longer applies, why would you cancel it? Why would God cancel it? 
point is it doesn't make any sense. It makes no sense whatsoever, in fact, to suppose that. What this means is that the fourth commandment is still in force, is still binding upon the believer in the New Testament age. Contrary to what many well-meaning Christians today teach and believe. It is still binding. And you and I still have an obligation to observe it and to and a privilege to observe it, by the way. It's a privilege. So let me ask you by way of application, have you been remembering the Sabbath day to keep it holy in your Christian life? Not as a means of working your way into heaven. Only Jesus and his works get us into heaven. But rather out of love for God and gratitude for what Christ has done for you by giving you already a participation in that rest now, uh, which is talked about in other places in Hebrews, again, but it's, it's future in, in this particular passage. But, but we are to celebrate the Sabbath to think on the rest that we enjoy, that we are not under law, that we are under grace. The law no longer condemns us. God no longer condemns us. We are at peace with God already. And we will enjoy a fruition of that and a fuller uh, realization of that in glory when we go there. Are you remembering the Sabbath day with those thoughts in mind? Are you actively using the Sabbath to remind you of that spiritual rest and of the greater rest that still awaits you? You see, it's it's a means of grace, folks. Treating the Lord's Day rightly is a means of grace. Just read, you just read what you know what is said in uh, Isaiah uh, fifty-eight and elsewhere. It's to uh, you'll ride on the heights of the earth. Uh, I think that's how he says it in Hebrews uh, uh, fifty-eight thirteen. It will cause you to rise on the heights of the earth, which is an expression for be filled with joy and uh, blessing. Old Testament language to that effect. You see, we need to take the Sabbath seriously, not not as a something to check off a to-do list. The Christian life should never be that. The motivation should be gratitude and love. And also, a desire for blessing. Nothing wrong with that. Third point, last point. Important point which is related to what I've just said, but an expansion on it. And that is, so, three things again. The rest to which the writer refers in uh, 3 three and 4, Hebrews 3 and 4, is um, is identified with God's rest at creation. It is entirely future. And then the third point is that it is to be anticipated by you and me by our consistent keeping of the Sabbath. This is found in ver- this. This point is made in verse 9. After he makes his case, he says in verse 9, he says, uh, verse verse 8, For if Joshua had given them, the Israelites of old, rest when he brought them into the land, the physical land of Canaan, which represented you know, uh, uh, the promised land to them, if that, if that had brought them rest, he says, he, God, would not have spoken of another day, meaning through David in Psalm 95, after that. He wouldn't have spoken of another day of rest, but he did. 
So the walking into Canaan didn't get the job done, you see. Now, it, 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 uh, in a redemptive historical way, it pointed to the rest of heaven and still does uh, as we look at uh, passages that speak on the uh, uh, conquest of Canaan. But uh, Canaan wasn't it. It was merely a picture. And so he says in verse 9, there remains therefore, because there, he spoke of another day, there remains therefore a Sabbath, a Sabbatismos, that's the Greek word that's used there, for the people of God. You can hear um, Sabbatismos uh, is a is a word that the writer of the Hebrews made up. There's there's one possibility. There's a, one other place that might be where this word might be used. Apparently, the text is a little bit corrupt, and we're not entirely sure if it was used. But a guy named uh, Plutarch, uh, in his Moralia, may have used this word, but it's, we're not certain about that. But it's almost unused by anybody else but him, and it looks like he created the word himself. Uh, the writer of the Hebrews. And he took the word sabbaton, which is the Greek word, uh, Greek transliteration of the Hebrew word Shabbat, which is Sabbath. And he created a word, it appears, which is very significant. So let me say more about this. The word is found in no other place in the New Testament, nor is that word found in the Old Testament translation, or the New Testament the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, which is written about 200 years before Christ and was widely used by Jews in Jesus' day because Greek was the lingua franca of the day. Um, so it's not found in the Septuagint, nor the New Testament. And again, there's only one other possible place where it might have been used, and it's iffy. Plutarch might have used it, the word once, but that might have been after the uh, writer of Hebrews wrote it. The word... Its verb form, sabatizo, is used a number of times in the Septuagint, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament Bible, or Old Testament. Sabatizo is used a number of times, and every time it is used, sabatizo, the idea of keeping the Sabbath the way the Jews kept the Sabbath in the Old Testament is in view. And the writer was Right of the Hebrews was well acquainted with the Septuagint. He quoted mostly from the Septuagint, not from the what's called the Masoretic text, which is the Hebrew text. And we can you can tell sometimes you can if you know Greek and Hebrew you can tell the difference uh, uh, which translate or what he's using. And this guy used the Septuagint extensively, so he knew about the word its use of sabatizo. The it's highly probable, again, that he himself coined the word found in verse 9 on the basis of the Septuagint's usage of the verb sabatizo. And he turned it into an, uh, an adjective, or adjective, noun, sabatismas. Why did he do this? Why would he have done that? Because sabatizo talks all, it refers to Sabbath-keeping as, as it was practiced under the Old Covenant. So why did he do this? Well, throughout this section, 3.7 to 4.13, the writer has been using a more general word for rest repeatedly. And that's a word called katapausis. And rest, katapausis just means kind of 
general rest, kind of resting. Doesn't have much other meaning other than just kind of uh, being at rest. Why didn't the writer of the Hebrews, why didn't he use the word katapausis here in verse 9? Say, why did he say, there remains therefore a Sabbath observance or a Sabbath keeping, in other words, with the word Shabbat or uh, Sabbaton in it, why did, or Sabbatizo, why did he use that word if all he was trying to say was there remains a rest for the people of God? You're at rest, you're all there is, you're already at rest. You already have peace with God. You're already reconciled with God. You have katapausis. You're, you're at rest. Isn't it wonderful? And it is, by the way, wonderful. <laughs> right? But if he'd been using this word katapausis in verse 1, back in verse, uh, uh, back in verse, uh, chapter 3, two or three times, verse 11, um, uh, I don't know. There, there, there are three or four uses of katapausis. He could have used katapausis again in verse 9 there and said there remains therefore a rest for the people of God. You're already, you're already enjoying it. He didn't. He chose the word, he made up a word, almost certainly, based on sabbatizo and that word's use in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which meant Sabbath keeping the way the Jews of the Old Testament kept the Sabbath. And he took that word and he created a word, it appears, out of it, which is Sabbath observance or Sabbath keeping. But with the word sabbaton or sabbatizo embedded in it as, a, as its root. Joey Piper, in his book, The Lord's Day, who was with us a few months back uh, for our, our conference, he wrote on this subject, and he wrote in his book this. He says, The writer, meaning the writer of Hebrews, selects or coins sabbatismos because in addition to referring to spiritual rest, which it, you know, which is what we enjoy in Christ, because in addition to referring to spiritual rest, sabbatismos suggests as well an observance of that spiritual rest by Sabbath-keeping. Jewish style. That was, my, that was my addition. Piper didn't say Jewish style. I did. So the writer wants his readers, and the writer, of course, is God, ultimately, wants us, the readers of this book, this sermon, to understand that one of the principal ways that we are to anticipate the future, yet future, heavenly rest that the writer is focusing on here in this passage, one of the principal ways we are to anticipate that, that rest that we will one day enjoy in, before the throne of grace, is by keeping, or by the kind of Sabbath keeping that the Old Testament saints observed. God still wants his people to observe the Sabbath. And this is why, by the way, we and the, the Puritans, of our Puritan forefathers and the Westminster uh, framers of the Westminster Standards, this is why they refer to Old Testament passages that talk about specific how do you keep the Sabbath. Because the New Testament gives us warrant for saying, okay, that Sabbath-keeping 
those Sabbath-keeping uh, principles um, were not ceremonial. They were moral. And, you know, they, they didn't pass away when Jesus came. They still apply. He still wants you to remember the Sabbath day as well. How? In closing, how? In the same way, again, that Old Testament believers kept it, that's how. With one exception, there is one exception that is ceremonial, a ceremonial component of the moral fourth commandment, and that is the day on which it is to be celebrated. That has changed. We have New Testament warrant for that from the seventh day to the first day of the week. Let me just read to you the larger catechism questions 117 and 119 as we conclude. How is the Sabbath or the Lord's Day to be sanctified? This is question 117. The Sabbath or Lord's Day, identical in in, uh, in the minds of the framers of the Westminster Standards and uh, modern Presbyterians today. The Sabbath or Lord's Day is to be sanctified by an holy resting all the day, not only from such works as are at all times sinful, but even from such worldly employments or recreations as are on other days lawful, and making it our delight to spend the whole time except so much as to be taken up in works of necessity and mercy in the public and private exercises of God's worship. And to that end, we are to prepare our hearts and with such foresight, diligence, and moderation to dispose and seasonably dispatch our worldly business that we may be the more free and fit for the duties of that day. In other words, get your work done ahead of time that you would otherwise be tempted to do on Sunday. It doesn't include food preparation, by the way, because there's biblical warrant for that. That's not one of the issues that was referred to. And then question 119, or one of the works that had to be uh, 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 not done. 119, what are the sins forbidden in the fourth commandment? The sins forbidden in the fourth commandment are all omission of the duties required, all careless, negligent, and unprofitable performing of them, of those duties, and being weary of them, all profaning the day by idleness and doing that which is in itself sinful, and by all needless works, words, and thoughts about our worldly employments and recreations. And there's biblical warrant for all those things, by the way, that they mentioned there. If you want those passages, we can look at them later. You can come up here and ask me about them. So, in conclusion, are you delighting in the day as a gift from God to you? and a picture of what Christ has done for you and the grace that you enjoy from God. Are you delighting in that day? 
or doing something less than delighting in it when you think about the day? Are you for, are you refraining from all labor other than works of necessity and mercy? Jesus gives us warrant for uh, that, that, that works of necessity and mercy, the ox in the ditch, healing on the Sabbath. Those are, those are not uh, improper works. They're works, but they're not improper works on the, on the Lord's Day, on, on the Christian Sabbath. But are you refraining from all other work? The Old Testament and the New, uh, by implication, um, calls upon us to do that. And are you striving to avoid thoughts, words, and deeds that do not promote the purposes of the day, which is to cause you and me to think on what Christ has done for us and to draw closer to God in deliberative worship? This is very convicting for me to say all this to you because I know I don't keep this the way I should. You are under grace. God forgives you for your breaches of this in the past. Even today, if you've not approached the day quite right, he forgives us. He's happy to forgive us. But he does want us to take it seriously and to do our part to be better at honoring him by honoring the day. And by the way, this day of rest is indeed very much pointing to what Christ did for us. He has purchased your spiritual rest and mine. The day is all about him. His uh, deliverance of us from our spiritual Egypt. And he purchased this rest that you enjoy already and that you will enjoy in much greater fullness in glory. But it's all about Christ. And the supper that we're about to partake of points us to that rest and to that Savior who brought it as well. If you've never looked to Jesus in faith alone, trusting in him alone to make you right with God, if you've never done that, if you're not, uh, if you're trusting somehow in uh, some good works that you've done or uh, the fact that you're a decent person or you know, obedient to your parents or whatever, uh, which you aren't, by the way, perfectly or anywhere close, but anyway, um, if you're trusting in something other than Jesus, the, the God-man, who's the only way to God, uh, you're on the road to hell, which is the place of God's wrath eternal wrath. And the only way you're going to get off that road is if you flee to the source of God's grace, and that's Jesus. Do it. Don't be a fool. Do it. Today. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this passage. Thank you for its 